Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, taking an in-depth look at the book of 1 Peter. The first letter of Peter was written to Christ followers who were scattered throughout the known world. They were learning to live out their faith in a whole new world. Peter doesn't want them to be surprised by suffering and persecution. He wants them to see those things as an opportunity to live out their faith. As we study this book together, we'll learn that no matter what happens, we have a God who cares for us, and we have the hope that we will one day be with Him. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning. We want to welcome everybody here on our Granby campus and also on our online campus. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here today, and we invite you to come back again next week. We're in the middle of a series, as you've just seen, on the book of 1 Peter. And today we're going to jump into chapter 3. And and chapter 3 starts off speaking about marriage and about the roles in marriage. And and I'm just going to admit, from a cursory reading of these scriptures, some of you are going to feel put off by what you read. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to hang in there. I'm going to ask you to hang in there because we're going to take a deep dive and go beyond that cursory reading. Now, to set the stage, uh, let me tell you a, a story. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy Keller, wrote a book called The Meaning of Ma- Marriage. In it, Kathy Keller gives an example of submission in a tough life choice. And this is what she writes. In the late 1980s, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia, where Tim was a full-time professor at a local university. Then he got an offer to move to New York to plant a new church. He was excited by the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do in a nine-to-five job. It would absorb him and the whole family nearly all of the time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take that call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. However, I replied, oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break the logjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Tim made that decision to come to New York and plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church The whole family, my sons included, consider it to be one of the truly manly things that he ever did because he was quite scared, but he felt it was a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with, but it was clear that God worked in us and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. So let's dig into this. We're going to start with this idea of marriage roles. Uh, The most important role that you need to know you have is that you are an image bearer of God. 
It doesn't matter whether you're married or not. We all need to understand that we bear the image of God. We were created in his image. We see that in the story of creation. In the first chapter of Genesis, it says this. So God created human beings to be in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, don't take it for granted. Every single one of you, every single one of you, bears the image of God. We were made in his image, and because we're made in his image, we are valuable to God. That that value is not based on your abilities. It's not based on your intellect. It's not based on your net worth. It's based on the fact that God created you in his image, and that he values you, and that he loves you. Now, as the creation story progresses, we begin to understand more about our roles. In the very next verse, we read this. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over all of creation. We understand that there is a a procreation role to to make more people, and that there's also an oversight role given to human beings regarding the rest of of the earth and all of creation, where we are called to steward it, to take care of it, to manage it, to oversee it. Going further in chapter 3, we see that humanity falls into disobedience and sins against God, but we also see a clearer delineation of the roles of this new created humankind. God says that one of the specific roles of a woman was to bear children, and one of the specific roles of the man was to provide for his family. Obviously, we know that childbearing is an exclusive role for women. And we also know that both men and women can provide for their family. But what we see here is the orderliness of God. And that's important to understand. Scripture tells us that God is is not a God of disorder. In other words, God is a God of order. He does things in orderly ways. We see that in the way that God created the universe. We see that in the way that that God ordered the days of the week in creation. We can attest to the orderliness of God's handiwork when we just look at our own human bodies and see the different systems that, that keep our bodies going and functioning. And we can see the orderliness of God that he actually gave humans specific roles for the purpose of fulfilling the command that he gave us to be fruitful and to multiply. Now we're going to jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In God's orderliness, we learn that in the New Testament, God has made Jesus the head over all the church, the body of Christ. He is the head, we are the body. And as the head, he has every power and authority, and he's over all of that. You see, there's orderliness in that. There's orderliness for the church, and there's orderliness for those who have been given authority. And we also learn that this orderliness extends into marriage. In Ephesians, we read this, a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, this is not about a power structure. Let me just say that again. This is not about a power structure, all right? This is about an orderliness structure. It's about God 
creating order for the purpose of fulfilling his will and his mission on this earth. I appreciate Pastor Eugene Peterson. He took the entire Bible and uh, he didn't exactly translate it. He actually paraphrased it into modern language. And this is his paraphrase of Ephesians 5.23. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So this helps us see that this is not about power, but it's about roles and about order. One scholar points out that the man and the woman are equally God's image, but they have different roles in governing the creation and filling it with God's image bearers. God created the man to lead, protect, and provide for those under his leadership, and he created the woman to come alongside and help the man. Like God then, the man and the woman share equally in essence, but have different roles of authority and submission. Now, seeing these, these roles is important background as we jump into 1 Peter chapter 3. So I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives... Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, I suspect those verses hit you in different ways. And maybe you even reacted uh, in some way specifically. But, but bear with me, okay? Because we have to unpack these verses so let's look at this whole idea of, of submission in marriage. You know, as I mentioned very early in this message, from a cursory reading of these scriptures, you're going to both see and feel immediately how different the biblical roles in marriage are then in first century biblical times than they are in marriage today in 2021. So let's unpack what's going on here. Now, if you're like me, you probably counted the verses. There were six verses for wives and one for, men, for the husbands. That doesn't sound very balanced, does it? So to help us understand this, we actually have to, to zoom out, okay? We, ha we have to zoom out and remember that Peter is writing to Christians in the first century of the Roman Empire. And you need to understand something about the first century Roman Empire, Christianity was a tiny minority, a very tiny minority. When the church was born, they were told to go and share the gospel to the world. And so they began to do that. But they lived in a culture, in a world that was, was 
was dominated by this pantheon, this religious pantheon of other gods. They were the Greek gods, they were the Roman gods, and, and there was also the cult of, of the Roman emperor who was considered to be a god. And so all of that culture was really working against Christians. They were in a distinct minority. But because of their faith in Jesus, and because of the exclusivity of Christ, he called them to separate themselves from the culture in very distinct ways. And that did separate them from the rest of the population by not participating in those religious cults and those uh, things that were going on. Now, because of this, Christians regularly faced persecution. But Peter reminds them in his letter, in chapter 2 actually, to submit to the governing authorities. I mean, think this through. They're a distinct minority. They're facing persecution. He's saying, submit to the authorities that are over you because God has allowed them to be put in place. That's what he says. In the last part of chapter 2, we didn't read that, but in the last part of chapter 2, Peter actually goes on and he addresses slaves who have become Christians, and he tells them to submit to their masters, both the good masters and the harsh masters. You see, as a Christian slave, they were in a place where they had very little power whatsoever, and when they became followers of Jesus Christ, they understood that following Jesus was exclusive to all of the rest of the culture that they live in, lived in and all of the rest of the religions. They understood that they were in a distinctly small minority, not only as Christians, but also as slaves. And why should they submit to their masters? Peter says that you're supposed to submit out of reverence to God. In doing this, the slave is both honoring and obeying God. Now, I'm going somewhere, so hang with me. In chapter 3, we read that Peter says to wives that they're supposed to submit to their husbands. We have to remember this. In the first century, women in that culture had very little authority, very little power. Do you see a pattern? I hope you see the pattern because it helps you understand this scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is concentrating on those individuals who are in relationships where they have the least power in the relationship. In chapter 2, masters are not addressed. And here in chapter 3, husbands only have one verse. One scholar points out that the less powerful member of each of these pairs is addressed because their vulnerable stance is representative of the church as a whole in the first century Roman Empire. Just as slaves and wives lived under the rule of masters and husbands in that culture, so too these early Christian believers were subject to persecution from other members of their cultural circle. And because they were in the minority and because they were being exclusive to Christ, they faced that persecution regularly and often. Now returning to the wives of chapter 3. They were supposed to follow their husband and his religious views. In other words, these Christian women are in a place where they are in a minority in their homes, especially those whose husbands are, as Peter writes, that they do not believe in the word, meaning they're not followers of Jesus. 
Some people read these verses and they think that they're about male chauvinism and about oppression of women, but that's not what, Paul, what Peter is talking about here. He's actually instructing wives about how to be a witness for Christ in their homes where their husbands are not Christians. He says, wives, submit to your husbands so that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Interestingly, this, is what, this was what Peter wrote in chapter 2 about Christians submitting to the authorities, doing good in the community. Why? Because actions speak louder than words. This submission has a purpose that Peter's talking about. It's to win unbelieving husbands over to Christ. You see, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he changes our lives from our old way of living and thinking, and he wants us to follow him. And it changes us when we become more like Jesus. So Peter hoped that submission and godly behavior would become the means by which unbelieving husbands would be converted to, their Christian, to the Christian faith. Now, Peter continues driving at a Christian wife's witness to her unbelieving husband when he contrasts outer beauty with inner beauty. Look, he's not saying that jewelry, clothing, or fashion are bad. He's just pointing out that they don't last, uh, that they're not as important as one's character and the way one lives one's life. One's witness about Christ is not about the fashions we wear, it's about how we live in obedience to Jesus. So Peter closes that section by lifting up the example of Sarah, who submitted to her husband Abraham. You know, it's so important for us to see these verses in their original context before we react to the language that seems so out of touch in 2021. In another part of Scripture, the Apostle Paul wrote about Christian marriage, and he talked also about submission. And this is how he began his 13 verses on marriage in the book of Ephesians. He starts off with this sentence. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's mutual submission. He's telling husbands and wives that they're to submit to one another. And in keeping with first century understanding, he does tell wives in the very next verse to submit to their husbands. But the following three plus verses, he gives husbands a very clear picture of how husbands submit to their wives. This is what he writes. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives. This is a picture of a husband Willingly submitting himself to his wife by loving her and serving her sacrificially, literally giving himself up for his wife. Now, while Peter doesn't use the same language for husbands, his words can be seen in the same context of mutual submission that, that Paul says is the basis for Christian marriage. In this mutual submission in marriage would, would have been, in that culture, mutual submission in marriage would have been a radical departure from the rest of the culture. Because in that culture, uh, women had no place or position in that secular culture. 
They were actually considered more property than a person. So in verse 7, Peter addresses husbands and he says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let me point out, husbands are supposed to serve their wives, to be considerate of their wives. In first century, he says, respect your wives. That would have been unheard of in the secular culture of the Roman Empire. And then he says, treat them as partners and co-heirs of the gift of life. This is submission. And Peter points out that in doing so, it has spiritual consequences. He says, do this so it will not hinder your prayers. In other words, do this so it won't hinder your relationship with God because you're called to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For Christians in the first century and in the 21st century, marriage embodied and still embodies submission, but it's submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's go back and look at verse uh, 7 again, because it talks about this. It talks about partnership in marriage. I want to focus on this phrase from from verse 7, where Peter says, Husbands, treat your wives with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now, listen. Again, don't get sidetracked by some of the language. The use of the word weaker to describe women as their husband's partner is just stating a generally held assumption that men are physically stronger than women. That's all it's about. So don't get, don't get hung up on that. But here's what's so important. It's the idea that marriage together, you are partners that you are heirs together in God's design for Christian marriage to fulfill his mission on the earth. Now, the word translated here as partner quite literally means vessel, specifically a household vessel like like a pot or a pan or or a a cup or a bowl. Um, It's not calling a woman a bowl, but it's specifically talking about this, using it figuratively, saying that a wife is contributing to the usefulness of the husband and, and vice versa. The husband contributes to the usefulness of his wife. So so it's emblematic of the marriage partnership. Uh, That partnership is reinforced by the last part of the phrase that says that they are to be heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now, in the New International Version, uh, it uses uh, the plural, but in the original Greek, it literally means this, to be a fellow heir. In other words, to be a, or to be a joint heir, to be an heir together. What's your inheritance? Your inheritance is the grace of life and eternal life together because of your common faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a togetherness. It's a partnership. Look, I'm making a big deal about this because I want you to see that the Bible sees marriage as a partnership. The two become one. It's a mutual relationship of love and respect. It's not a hierarchy. It's not a power structure. The New Testament talks about marriage with the same ideas that both the book of, with the same idea that the book of Genesis does. In Genesis, we see that the woman and the man are both image bearers of God. 
We see that they're commanded to leave their family and, and become a family of their own. The two become one. They're commanded to fulfill God's will. Here in 1 Peter, we see the husband and the wife as partners in marriage, that they both inherit the blessings of God and of life. So look, I hope that this helps you understand the biblical view of Christian marriage. I hope for those of you who are married, it also helps you rededicate yourselves to embracing the values of Christian marriage. To those of you who are single, let me say this. Here's what you need to remember, that you are, a, you are created in the image of God. And if someday God allows you to be married, that's awesome. If not, that's okay. Either way, you are, you are created in the image of God. And we're called to fulfill his mission on this earth. Unfortunately, when it comes to these passages, sometimes people, men in particularly, want to misinterpret these scriptures as a justification to hold power over their spouse, even to abuse their spouse. There is nothing, absolutely nothing in scripture that would support that interpretation or that behavior. So let me be candid. If you're being abused in your marriage, you need to get out of that situation and we can help you. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Now let me address those of you who are married. Please don't take your marriage relationship for granted. Do the necessary work, the intentional work, and yes, sometimes the hard work to keep your marriage alive and fresh and well. Read books together on marriage. Find another married couple who can be a mentor to you, someone who's a little further along the way in the marriage journey, and, and ask them if they will mentor you. If you need help, seek out marriage counseling. Look, if you go to our website today, uh, we have some recommended books that you can read. We also have a, a referral list of marriage counselors. You can just go to our, our website, scroll down to the bottom of the homepage where it says Watch and Resources. Click on that and then click on other resources and they're there. Let me be completely transparent. I'm a huge fan of counseling. Uh, I recommend anyone who's struggling in life and particularly struggling in marriage or with other issues to see a therapist, to see a counselor. Cynthia and I have done marriage counseling on numerous occasions and I've done individual work on numerous occasions. I'm not ashamed to tell you that. There's nothing embarrassing about that. That actually is a sign of strength. It says, listen, I can't figure this out on my own or we can't figure this out on our own. We need somebody to speak into our lives who can see things objectively. For those of you struggling in marriage and maybe thinking about divorce, listen, I promise you that marriage counseling will be far less costly on both of you emotionally and financially than divorce will be. And just... Let me say this, be honest with yourself. If you think that leaving one marriage for another marriage means you'll leave issues that you have in your first marriage behind, that's not gonna happen. You'll just bring those issues along with you to the new marriage. So if you have issues, get help. See a counselor. And guys, if your marriage is struggling, be a leader and initiate finding a counselor and participate fully, mentally, and emotionally in that counseling. 
Now, for those of you who are married and, or who hope to be married today, let me suggest a little homework. It's one activity. And studies prove that it will improve your marriage. Are you ready for this? I'm going to give you the big reveal. Do the dishes together. You weren't expecting that, were you? Do the dishes together. Nobody likes to do the dishes. In fact, some of you will do anything to avoid doing the dishes. But there's a report from the Council on Contemporary Families suggesting that doing the dishes together can have a significant impact on the health and longevity of a relationship. It found that for women, it's more important to share the responsibility of doing the dishes than any other chore. Women who wash the vast majority of dishes report more relationship conflict, less relationship satisfaction, and even worse sexual intimacy than women who have partners who join them in washing the dishes. Women are more happy about sharing dishwashing duties than sharing any other household task. You know, what, what is it about dishes? Well, Dan Carlson, the author of the study, said, well, you know, doing the dishes is gross. There's gross, moldy, caked-on food sometimes sitting in the sink. If you have kids, there's curdled milk in the sippy cup, and it smells. It's disgusting. But couples who do share dishwashing responsibilities seem to have better relationships because they do it as a team. The nature of dishwashing encourages couples to stand in the kitchen together and work simultaneously side by side until the job is done. This kind of teamwork, especially when practiced regularly, often makes partners feel more connected and ready to tackle the gross and curdled. And it's important because you're doing that in the sink, but also in the rest of life. I mean, the reality is this, you know, we have been called to submit to one another. When I read this report about doing the dishes together, I said, wow, that's, that's submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, out of sharing the responsibilities. So if you're struggling or even if you're not in marriage, today, go home and do the dishes together. Now, as I close this message up, look, I, I want to challenge you. If you're struggling, if you're married, you, you've heard my challenge. Do whatever it takes to get help. If you need some advice, I'd be more than willing to ha help you. I'm not a marriage therapist, so I can't take you there. That's why I have a, a referral list. And, and guys, lead in this. If you're in danger in your marriage, reach out for help. Now, as I've taught on all this day, I recognize that some of you are saying, wow, this is really different from what I understand. Maybe you've never really seen and understood what the Christian faith is all about. Maybe you've never looked at marriage from a Christian point of view. So as I close our time in prayer today, if you've never told Jesus you believe in him and you would like to do that today to become a follower of Jesus, I'm just going to invite you to pray these words that I'm going to give you silently back to God, wherever you are, here in the room or online. And then I'm going to pray for all of us as image bearers of God. So let's bow our heads. Father, as we gather in this place today, Lord, we recognize that you have called us to you and you've given us your word in the Bible to lead us and to guide us. And I recognize for some people, this may be really new teaching. They've never heard it before because they've never really understood what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to submit themselves to you and in marriage to submit themselves to one another. So if you've 
never thought about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and you'd like to become his follower today, you can simply put these phrases in your own language and pray them back to God. Here's the first phrase. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died to pay for my sins. I believe he rose again from the dead. And today I say I believe in him and want to follow him. Then we'll move into another part of prayer here. Uh, Father, I thank you that we all have heard your word today, that we are image bearers. Whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're divorced, whether we're dating, whatever it is, we're image bearers. Lord, thank you for that. And Lord, I, I pray for every single marriage in this room and gathered with us online, that you would help each and every one of us understand that we need to submit to one another out of reverence to you. That, that, that marriage isn't about a, a power structure. It's about a partnership. It's about working together to see God's will done in our families, but also in the community and in the world. So Lord, help each and every one of us take that seriously. Help us not shy away from the important and yes, sometimes challenging and hard work of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But help us do it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.